Please join me in your Bibles in Psalm 69 for today's reading of God's Word. Psalm 69, we'll read it in its entirety. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in me be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking into the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let, the, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray to our God as we come to His Word this morning. Our God and Father, we hear these words from the Psalms and our hearts say Amen and we rejoice that You are our God. We rejoice that You are the God who hears, that You are the God who saves, that You are the God who delivers. And we want, Father, to come into Your presence this morning and to magnify You with thanksgiving and to give you praise for the greatness of the God who you are. So teach us from your word this morning, and may the words that come from my mouth, and may the meditations of our hearts upon your holy word be pleasing in your sight, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, you notice um, in your bulletins there that somebody asked me, are we only reading one verse of Scripture this morning? Because it says Psalm 69 and verse 30 is where we're focused for the sermon, and that is true. If you'll look at verse 30 there, and, and if you'll think of it in the context of everything that David pours out there, which is basically, God, help. I'm in distress and I need help and my help can only come from you. And in the middle of his distress, he says there in verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And that's what I want to focus on this week, even as we've all just celebrated Thanksgiving on Thursday. I hope all of you had a good Thanksgiving this past week with friends and family. But I know, and this is why I wanted to focus on Psalm 69 with you today, I know that for some people, for many people probably, in God's providence, holidays like Thanksgiving don't always coincide with happy circumstances and pleasant things in your lives. And so, there are hard things, and there are painful memories, oftentimes at the holidays, And at the same time, as the people of God, we're always learning more and more in our lives to view all of the circumstances of our lives through the lens of the reality of the sovereign purposes of our God. The sovereign purposes that are being worked out in this universe and in our lives, in every detail over which God is sovereign as He's orchestrating everything together for His glory and ultimately for our good. And also, we view all of the circumstances of our lives through the lens not only of the fact that God is sovereign, but that He is good in all of His sovereign ways. And so, even as we talked about last week, you remember from Acts chapter 16, trusting God's purposes... And letting Him guide our steps beyond our own purposes and our own plans, our own expectations, even our own well-meant plans. Even when that means that, that His guiding of our steps is going to lead to inconvenient and uncomfortable things in our lives, the wisdom of letting Him guide our steps is always going to lead us into better places than we could ever lead ourselves into or purpose for our own lives. And so it's that wisdom that causes the writers of Scripture to say things like Paul says, right? I rejoice even in my sufferings because they are evidences of God's sovereign orchestration in ways that I need, even though they're not what I would have wanted. And James can say, count it all joy when you encounter various trials of of many kinds. And Jeremiah can say, in the middle of absolute catastrophe in Jerusalem, as the Babylonians are burning the city to the ground, he can say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And His mercies never come to an end. In fact, they're new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. And the psalmist can say in Psalm 119, you know what? It was good. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn Your statutes, O Lord. That's hard, right? That's hard to acknowledge that in God's sovereignty He ordains affliction for us. In order not to punish us, not to torture us, not to be mean and cruel and capricious to us, but to teach us to trust Him. And it's hard to maintain this kind of perspective on the realities of our God's sovereignty and our God's goodness, especially when things are tough, especially when things are painful. But He's so good. And He's so kind and He's so merciful, not only to give us pleasant circumstances and to give us good things in our lives and and, and pleasant blessings in our lives, but also to ordain those hard times even in order to keep teaching us and training us to trust Him, to be grateful to Him, to give thanks to Him for all of His good purposes in our lives. And that's what I see David doing here in Psalm 69. You remember Paul's 
words, very familiar words in the book of Philippians, words that he wrote from a providentially very inconvenient and very uncomfortable place, right, from from being in prison, and he wrote these wonderfully challenging words. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the secret is this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure anything that God sovereignly ordains in my life through Christ who strengthens me. That's a contentment that stays content in whatever situation, in in any and every circumstance, in plenty and in hunger, in abundance and in need, right? If God can sovereignly order my circumstances to teach me that kind of contentment, then I should be tremendously thankful to Him for whatever He ordains in my life. And that kind of unconditional contentment is the evidence of a heart that is full of gratitude and full of thanksgiving to God. It's a, it's a heart that recognizes and understands and is full of confidence that God is sovereign and that God is good even when it doesn't feel good to us. A heart that recognizes that all of the rich and abundant blessings that our God lavishes upon us especially all of the blessings of salvation that are ours through faith in Jesus Christ, but, but also right all of the daily ways that God cares for us, that God provides for us, all of it far outweighs any hardship or any painful circumstance, any suffering that we could endure. And hearts that know that, not just understand that, but, but get that, and, and persevere in contentment like that, even when they're brought low, even when they're being persecuted, like Paul was when he wrote Philippians, hearts like that are hearts that are full of thankfulness that through all of it, God is God, and He is good. And that's what honors God. That's what magnifies God. And so thankfulness, see, is an absolutely central theme in God's Word, and that's why we're going to focus on it here this week. And what we need to see just from really these few verses towards the end of Psalm 69 is that thankfulness is absolutely central and essential for our lives because of the necessary connection between thankfulness and what I call always the most important thing in the entire universe. And so that's what we're going to start with. We're going to start with what, in verse 30, David connects thankfulness to the most important thing in the entire universe. And what is that thing? What is the one single purpose that is greater than any other purpose in the universe? What is the one priority that trumps all of them? Greater even than, say, if we could put an end to all human warfare on this planet. Or maybe we could, we could find a way to cure every disease that there is. All the viruses. All the cancers. Or if we could completely eliminate poverty in this world and, and hunger in this world. If we could put an end to all violence and, and, and every kind of injustice in this world there's still a purpose that's greater than that. Those are great things. Those are important things. But greater by far is the all-important purpose of the magnification and the exaltation of the glory of God. The magnification of God's glory is the single most important purpose in all the universe. It's, It's certainly far more important than the realization of all of my dreams and all of my personal ambitions or the abundance of my personal comfort and happiness. Better than all of that, more important than all of that, 
is the cause of the magnification of the glory of God. And if we say, well, that doesn't sound right. It should have something more to do with, with me or with mankind. If, we don't, if it bothers us to say that the most important thing is the glory of God, if we chafe against that, it just means that in our sin we've imagined that our cause, whatever, whatever it is that we want, is greater and more important than the cause of God's glory. And every instinct and every inclination to think that way in our minds or, or towards that kind of attitude in our hearts is just a manifestation of our sinful rebellion against the reality of why we exist in the first place. Why? Why are we here? Isaiah 43 says that God made us, created us, for the purpose of His glory. Now, what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God chose us, He redeemed us, He saved us for the purpose of His glory. First, what does that mean? Think about this, in in the book of Exodus and and in Romans chapter 9, God's Word says that God even raised up Pharaoh, the, the wicked king of Egypt in the Old Testament, and brought him to ruin for the sake of God's glory. In John 17, Jesus said that when He walked on this earth, everything that He did, He did for the sake of the glory of His Father. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever, even in the most mundane things you do in your life, do it for the glory of God. The Old Testament prophets say that God's ultimate plan is to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of His glory, right? Habakkuk chapter 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord even as the waters cover the sea. Everything exists for God's glory. What does that mean? What does it mean to magnify the glory of God? What is the glory of God? You'll remember with me a very succinct and concise and helpful definition that John Piper gives. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections. That's what the Bible is is talking about when it talks about the glory of God. It's talking about everything great and awesome and beautiful and perfect about the nature of God. The infinite degree of the beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections in His character, in His nature, in His ways, in His purposes, in His laws, in His word. All of that is what the glory of God has to do with. All of His attributes... All of His ways, the infinite beauty and greatness of all of it is is what His glory is and the highest purpose in the whole universe, the reason for the existence of everything that there is, the reason why you exist in this world and the greatest possible priority, the greatest possible good that you could ever hope to achieve in this life that God has given you is the magnification of God's glory, to, to make it known to testify to it, not just with your mouth, but with your life, to exalt the infinite beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, Psalm 34 says, and let us exalt His name forever. You know, the word exalt just means to to lift something up on high so that everyone can see it. And then to celebrate the greatness of whatever that is that you're exalting. And the word magnify means to show something to be as glorious and awesome as it actually is. And that's the greatest purpose. That's the highest possible good in all of the universe and in all of life is whatever it costs, whatever it takes to make God look as awesome as He actually is. To lift up His name. 
and to give praise to Him and to celebrate His glory for all to see. It's not... It's not our comfort first and foremost, right? It's not our happiness. It's it's nothing about us first and foremost that matters most. We exist. God's word insists that we exist in order to lift high all of God's excellencies and to show and to tell and to rejoice in how awesome and how beautiful and how wonderful His character and attributes and works and ways really are. So, Psalm 69, verse 30 I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify Him. How? With thanksgiving. There's no greater purpose than magnifying the glory of God. Very simply because there is nothing greater than God Himself. There's no one superior. There's no one more worthy of being exalted and magnified and glorified. And so the calling of 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 God's people, of the people who love Him and have been loved by Him, is to make His greatness to begin to look as great as it really is. And that's what our lives are all about. That's that's what it means to live for Him. It means to act and to talk and to think and to even feel and have attitudes in a way that will make God look as great and awesome as He really is. That's what the Bible means when it talks about magnifying God and His glory. The word magnification in this context means taking something that might seem small and insignificant to people and and making sure that it looks as big and awesome and glorious as it really is. The word magnification here means the same thing as if you were to look at a distant star through a giant telescope. Because as you look at it with your just natural eyes, it seems like just this little pinpoint of light in the sky among many pinpoints of light. But if you look at it through a telescope, if you magnify it, you don't make it bigger, but you make yourself realize how big and bright and glorious it is, right? That's... That's the whole purpose of your life. That's the whole purpose of of the universe. It's It's the reason we exist, is to make God look as awesome and spectacular as He really is. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. This is convicting. This is glorious. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my own joy in God's glory And that these two are one passion. A passion for God's glory. A a life-driving passion that the things that he said and did would make God look to be as great and glorious as he really is. And a passion to be joyful in that. In every hard circumstance, even in suffering, to rejoice that through this, God is being glorified. God, let me rejoice in everything that you do. Whether it's what I asked for, whether it's what I hoped for, whether it's what I wanted, so long as it brings you glory and my life causes you to look as great as you are, let me rejoice in all of of the things that you do. That's a life-transforming way of, of thinking and viewing life, isn't it? How much sin would be conquered in this world? How much wickedness in this world could be vanquished? How many crimes would just cease to exist? How many broken relationships and homes and lives could be mended if more people pleaded with their God to give them a passion to be joyful in His glory more than they were joyful in anything else in the world? So we can see how important because of who God is, we can see how important His glory is. So now, look at that little verse, Psalm 69.30, and notice from David's own words how important thanksgiving is. Not, Not the holiday, but the disposition of the human heart, the the atmosphere of our souls that embraces God's Sovereign goodness and awesomeness in all circumstances of life 
And not only says, I can be content with it all, but I'm grateful. I'm thankful for it all. You see the connection between the magnification of God and His glory and an attitude of thanksgiving. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in your heart, in your life, in your mind, out of your mouth, in the way that you live, is the telescope that shows the world how awesome God is, how glorious God is. So know this, first of all, know that no one can say to David, and and you know this because... (laughs) When Michael read these verses, you you can understand the context in which David says, I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. He's not having a party here, is he? This isn't a fun time of David's life that, that he says this in. No one can say to David, it's easy for you to say that you magnify God with thanksgiving because... You haven't really suffered. At least not like I have, right? Nobody can, nobody can say that to David. We, certainly, we couldn't say it to Paul, could we? Who wrote the book of Philippians, which is all about gratitude and contentment and joy. He wrote it from a dark, muddy hole in a Roman prison. We can't say to Paul, well, you, you just don't get it. You just don't understand hard lives. Certainly couldn't say it about Jesus, could you? can't say it about David either, that he doesn't know about hardship and sorrow and suffering and loss, and that he's quick to talk all about thanksgiving and praise and rejoicing because he just had such an easy life and he never went through anything tough. I mean, of course he did. And yet, his soul does magnify the Lord with thanksgiving and not just when things are peachy and fun even when they're not, like here in Psalm 69. I mean, so we're focused on verse 30, but you got to remember how the thing starts, right? Verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters are up to my neck. I'm up to my neck in trouble here. People are trying to kill me all the time. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. I'm praying so much. My eyes grow dim from waiting for God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause and are trying to, trying to kill me and they're mighty. And they're trying to destroy me. They're attacking me with lies and trying to literally tear me apart. And he goes on like this, right, throughout the rest of the psalm. Sackcloth is his clothing. His name is a byword among his enemies. He's overwhelmed by reproach and shame and dishonor from people who hate him. And they're trying to find him and trap him and ensnare him and kill him. And yet he knows and clings to the reality that God's steadfast love is sure and true and has not failed him. And in the midst of everything he's going through, he can still say, I magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. Even when he's most definitely not getting what he wants in life. That's usually when we give thanksgiving, right? When we're getting what we want that's when we're likely to express gratitude and contentment and thanksgiving. But here, David's doing it anyway, in spite of not getting anything that he wants. And in this psalm, he answers the the big how question when it comes to magnifying the glory of God, right? How do we do it? If magnifying God and His glory is the greatest purpose in the universe, then, then how do we accomplish that? Especially when life is hard. How do I, as a finite human, how do I magnify the infinite holy God? Well, David gets right down to it, right? And says, you magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. Specifically, 
gratitude glorifies God. This is a central theme all throughout Scripture. Seems kind of obvious on the one hand, right? Of course it glorifies God when we show Him gratitude, when we thank Him for the good things that He gives us. Right? We're pointing to Him and saying, that was kind of Him to do this good thing for me. He's faithful, He's merciful, He's kind. He's a good shepherd. He's a heavenly Father from whose right hand all good things flow. We thank Him. And thanking Him for the good things acknowledges all that He is in His goodness. And that's, that's the easy part for us to recognize. The hard part is recognizing that the opposite's also true. It, recognizing and confessing that, that where our hearts lack gratitude towards God, where we, are, where we are negligent in giving thanksgiving to Him, where we are tending towards discontentment and grumbling and complaining in our lives, not only are we not glorifying God in those times, the reason why we're not being thankful is because God's glory is not our greatest priority in those times. It's our own glory that brings about our grumbling. When our attitudes are ungrateful, when our attitudes are discontented, it's partly because we're not focused on all the good things that God does for us. And sometimes all of us complain about what we don't have instead of being thankful for all the good things that we do have, right? That's a basic human tendency. We suffer something hard, we go through a difficult thing, and we go, this is all there is in my life. And we forget about all of the other really good things that God has sovereignly blessed us with. And we just want to complain about the the bad things. But see, that's not even the whole story, right? There's There's a reason behind that impulse, right? There's a reason why we tend to think more about what we don't have than what we do have. And the reason is because when we're complaining, when we're discontent, when we're ungrateful, when we're more concerned with what we don't have than what we do have, it's because in those moments, the glory of God is not at the top of our priority list. Our own glory is. Think about the the children of Israel coming through the wilderness. They'd been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were living in squalor there. They were forced to do all of that hard labor there. They were being beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters when they didn't meet their quotas. Why did those Israelites, after God delivered them, freed them, and led them out of all that bondage and slavery, why did they, why did they grumble? And bicker and complain while they followed God to freedom in the wilderness. For the same reason that I do. That we all tend to when things aren't to our liking. Even though God has done so many other good things for us. The Israelites who had been miraculously freed from all of that centuries of slavery. They weren't just, when they were in the wilderness, they weren't just sad, Right? They were just overwhelmed and weighed down. They were hurting and weak and broken and sorrowful, right? As they made their way through the dry wilderness. Make no mistake, they were, they were doing much more than just experiencing pain and weakness. Pain and weakness in your life, God gets. God understands. Even Jesus experienced that. He experienced it for us. He suffered just like we do and more. He, he understands when you're hurting. He cares. With, he has compassion, like we saw a few weeks ago, when you're hurting. But see, the children of Israel on their way out of Egypt and through the wilderness and, and going towards the promised land, they responded to their suffering. They responded to their hardship and weakness and sorrow, not in a God-glorifying way, but in a sinful way, by bickering and by grumbling and by expressing in gratitude towards God. And you, you know all about what God had done for them. 
But all throughout Exodus, they grumbled at God. They grumbled at Moses. I mean, water's literally flowing supernaturally out of a rock in the middle of the desert, and they're going, we don't have enough to drink. Man is literally falling miraculously out of the sky. And they're saying, oh, that we could go back to Egypt because there were garlic and onions there. And all we've got is this man. Where's the meat, God? We should... we. We would have rather died, they said, in Egypt instead of coming out here to live like this in the wilderness. I mean, think about how absurd that ingratitude was. Especially given what God had done for them and had promised to do for them. And then, we all need to be very honest, right? Was their attitude so different from ours when we complain about our lot in life considering how much God has given us and how much He has promised to give us, especially in Christ Jesus? The attitude of the Israelites in the wilderness was owing to the simple fact that they were far more concerned with their own comfort and their own happiness than with God's Glory. And God had glorified Himself, right? Parting the Red Sea and and appearing as this pillar of fire before them to lead them towards the promised land. And coming down in majesty and glory and making the whole skies split apart and, and, and peals of thunder and smoke and fire pour down on Mount Sinai. He had glorified Himself. And yet they complained. Because God's glory was not the most important thing to them. Because if it was, they would have just been so enraptured with wonder and awe that there wouldn't be any instinct to whine and complain. What an awesome God He is. Look at what He's done. Look at what He's doing. Surely He will keep the promises to do what He has has said He will. He's amazing. And all of their discomforts and struggles along the way would would just pale in comparison to His greatness, right? If His glory was what they valued as the greatest possible good. Then, earthly bread and water wouldn't be anywhere near the top of their, their list of concerns. And the blisters on their feet wouldn't bother them nearly so much. Because the great I am was leading them to freedom and to promise and manifesting his glory in their midst and showing the beauty and the awesomeness of all of his perfections along the way. Psalm 35 says in verse 27, Let those who delight in righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, the Lord be magnified. And in that psalm, he contrasts this, this group of people who love to magnify the Lord with a, 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 an opposite group. He says, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves instead of the Lord. So there are those who love to magnify God. And then there are those who love to magnify themselves. And I think what God's Word is telling us is that at the root of all human ingratitude is the love of our own greatness. True gratitude, right? Genuine thankfulness towards God is the acknowledgement and the admission that His glory is infinitely more important than anything about me, than my comfort, and that He has glorified Himself by lavishing undeserved blessings on us, unearned blessings, undeserved blessings, mercies and kindnesses and gifts that we don't deserve at all. And and admitting that whatever we're going through right now, and as hard as it might be, it is so much better than what we deserve to go through under the justice of God's wrath against our sin. And admitting all of that, that's that's the core of gratitude. 
Piper paints the picture like this in his typical sort of poetic way. He says, look, we are all cripples leaning on the cross-shaped crutch of Jesus Christ. That's just what we are. We've got to admit that, right? We've got to acknowledge that. We're nothing unless Christ has redeemed us. We're just cripples leaning on the cross-shaped crutch of Jesus Christ. We are all paralytics living minute by minute in the iron lung of God's mercy. And we are all children. We are all little infants asleep in heaven's stroller. That's, those are poignant pictures, right? Images. Cripple, paralytic, infant, right? Helpless, ultimately powerless, utterly dependent. We natural, natural human beings in their natural sinfulness don't want to think of themselves that way, right? Why? <laughs> because those kinds of images. Deny us any glory and give all the glory to God. And we chafe at that. And so as long as the natural sinful man is in love with his own glory, and as long as he's committed to his own self-sufficiency, and as long as he refuses to think of himself as desperately sick with sin and helpless to save himself, he's never going to feel any genuine gratitude or thanksgiving towards God. And so he will never magnify God. He will never exalt God. He'll only magnify self. Now, hasn't God done really, really good things for us? Think of Psalm 65. The Lord visits the earth and waters it abundantly for us. Doesn't God do that for us? And give harvests of all kinds of blessing. And I love the imagery in Psalm 65 where it says that, that the wagon tracks are overflowing with God's abundance even. And so the question is just how well... As God's people, how well do our hearts, as people who have been given far greater blessings than we ever deserved, that we could ever ask for or imagine asking for, Ephesians 3, how well do our hearts magnify God by honoring Him with thanksgiving in all things? How often do we do that? Or how often are we too busy reveling in our own glory and then getting weighed down with with discontentment and ingratitude to be able to magnify him. Now, David goes on here in Psalm 69. He says there in verse 30, I will magnify him with thanksgiving, and this will please the Lord. To do this, to magnify him with thanksgiving, will please the Lord. Look at what it says. More than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. David is saying that thanksgiving, right, a heart that pours out genuine gratitude will please God more than the sacrifices that God himself had commanded in the temple worship. Why? Why does the blood offering of of an expensive animal that God himself required, why does that please God less than the simple offering of genuine thanks? Because God sees the heart. Turn over to Psalm 50 for a sec. This is really convicting. Psalm 50, look at verse 9. In Psalm 50, in verse 9, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Because every beast of the forest is already mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. What's he saying? Look, don't think you're adding anything to me here, right? Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Do, I, do these sacrifices somehow satiate my hunger? Are you doing me some favor, do you think? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
Perform your vows to the Most High and, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and, and thus you shall glorify me. So see, God is saying that he, he doesn't want to accept a bull or a goat as a sacrifice from his people. Why not? Because he's, com- I mean, he's, he's commanded them to do that, right? So when they obey and bring those sacrifices, why would he say, I don't want it? Why would he reject it? Well, it's because even though they're technically doing all the right things outwardly, they're doing it with the wrong heart, the, the wrong attitude. And they're, and they're trying to hide, actually, their sinful attitudes and motives behind this outward form of obedient stuff, deeds. I mean, Jesus nails the Pharisee with this, right? Over and over and over. The outside of the cup looks great, but the inside where it really counts is full of sin and hypocrisy. So who cares about what you're doing on the outside, Jesus is saying. You're just like whitewashed tombs, prettied up on the outside, full of rot and decay and sin and selfishness and greed on the inside. God's saying the same thing all the way back here in Psalm 50. He's not interested in outward sacrifices and good deeds when they're coming from sinful motives and selfish attitudes on the inside. So, what's this wrong attitude that displeases God here in Psalm 50? Look at it carefully, and and you can identify it by how God responds to it, right? Verse 10, every beast of the forest is, is mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field, they're mine. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine. What's he saying? He's saying, when you bring me these sacrifices, you do it as if you're bringing me something that I need. You're not recognizing that this is all about your desperate need of salvation. You're you're acting like you're meeting some need in me. That's their attitude, right? They're coming as if there's nothing they need from God. And so they must be doing all of this, coming to the temple, performing ceremonies, sacrificing animals. They think they must be doing it all because there's something God needs from them. And God's going, hello, I don't need anything from you. You can't add anything to me. You bring me a bird, great. They're all mine anyway. It's not like I'm hungry and I need something to eat. And and even if I was, I wouldn't need you to bring it to me. I'm capable of, right? See, here is man's self-exaltation again. Even in the practice of their worship, they found a way to exalt their own self-sufficiency. And even to pretend that they were the great givers and benefactors. And that God was the needy receiver, the beneficiary of something that they did for His benefit. And so the very act of worship became a a way for them to belittle God by refusing to assume the role of needy receivers, by refusing to admit that they were the helpless and undeserving ones who were being given mercy as these animals were being sacrificed instead of them paying the price for their sin. And the the whole point, see, listen, this is what our hearts do. And they do it all the time, and they do it instinctively. And see, if we're honest, we, we don't have to dig very deep to find the residue of this kind of sinful pride in our own hearts and our own lives. Do you see yourself as the helpless infant asleep in heaven's stroller, completely dependent upon the mercy and the grace of God? Do you see yourself as the cripple leaning on the cross-shaped crutch of Jesus Christ without whom you have nothing? The true worshiper is the one who comes before God with the attitude that says, I'm a broken and, and wretched sinner and I've been saved by a grace that I could have never earned or asked for or even imagined asking for. And I can hardly believe that you would save a wretch like me. But you did. 
And you even gave me as a gift the faith to believe it. And I'm so thankful for all of that. And so I'm here to worship you. I'm here to magnify you with thanksgiving. That's got to be the soul of worship. That's got to be the attitude that we all walk into church with, right? Otherwise, we fail to magnify God. Because our hearts contend to get cold and numb towards what we need from Him. And so we can start to slip into this mode of the worshipers there in Psalm 50, not sensing anymore our need of His grace. Somehow thinking of ourselves more as the givers in worship than as the receivers, first and foremost. Well, we're here and we've got our ties on and we're doing it all right and we're singing all the notes just right and we're giving God exactly what He needs instead of going, I'm just here to receive So, God's antidote to this kind of attitude that he's condemning in Psalm 50 is in verse 15. If we have this attitude that thinks we're doing some favors to God instead of that we're receiving undeserved mercy from Him, then He commands us to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. To acknowledge God as the giver of the grace we never deserve. And to humbly accept our own status as the lowly receivers, the cripples, the paralytics, the helpless infants. That's that's how we've got to truly see ourselves and approach God because this is what magnifies Him. And that's what he says. Look down at verse 23 here of Psalm 50. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who comes to God saying, God, I need your mercy. God, I need your grace. And I praise you and I thank you for giving it to me freely when I didn't deserve it. When I didn't even have the humility to ask for it, you gave it to me anyways. That's the heart of thanksgiving. And that's what magnifies God. More than than the sacrifice of the most expensive animal you could imagine. Over in Psalm 51, right? These familiar words of David, the sacrifices that please God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. God won't despise that. God won't reject that. And that's the only sort of heart out of which sacrifices of real thanksgiving can flow. Now look back to 69, Psalm 69. And let's close here with the... These, these last couple of verses, look at verses 32 and 33. David says this, When the humble see it, they will be glad. And you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy. The Lord hears the needy. And does not despise His own people who are prisoners. So, What I hear in those verses is this great comforting hope. David's saying that the thing that we can be most grateful and thankful for is that the Lord hears the needy. Those whose hearts are weak, those whose hearts are weary, and then revived by the Lord, those are the ones who seek God and recognize that they need His grace and mercy. And so they're coming to Him alone to find it, making themselves dependent upon Him. And then when they do find His grace and mercy, and when they do come and, and say, God, I need, God hears. And God cares, and God answers, and God provides. And then gratitude becomes the way we magnify Him. What does Jesus say? Those who are well... Don't have need of a doctor, right? It's those who are sick. So when we're sick, when we're weighed down by sin and weakness, by hardships and brokenness and sorrow over our sin, when we're we're afflicted even by circumstances that shred our hearts and overwhelm our strength, isn't that when we realize how much we need God? 
And that's when we have a choice. To either be centered around me, around self, and focus on our own desires for comfort and happiness and then start to complain and grumble against God like the Israelites did that He's not giving us what we think we need and deserve. Or we can choose. And we can choose it because by His divine power He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and even the ability to make this choice to be centered around Him and His glory. Like Jesus was, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, because that glorified God. It put God's majesty and God's mercy on display, and Jesus wanted nothing more than He wanted that, and Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to accomplish that. Or like Paul who said, it's no longer I who live. It is this God-glorifying Jesus who lives in me. And so, when it came to to Paul's awful and terrible and painful circumstances, he learned to be content in everything. Because he wasn't centered around self. He chose to be centered around God's glory. And he was able to say things like this in 2 Corinthians 11, right, where he um, prayed to God to remove that thorn in his flesh. Whatever it was that was painful and devastating to him, please God, take this thing away from me three times. I'm asking and he's not removing it. I'm asking and he's not removing it. I'm asking and he's not removing it. So what do I conclude? He's not listening to me. He doesn't care about me. He's neglecting me. He's forsaken me. He's not a good God. He's not a good father. Did Paul conclude that? No. God must be saying to me, by allowing the thorn, whatever it is, to remain. Because I know He's good. Therefore, He must be saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so I want you to be weak because it's good for you. It's good for you. And Paul's see Christ-filled, grace-driven, God-centered heart then could respond this way. All right? I'm not going to grumble about this weakness. I'm going to accept it. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may be what rests upon me. And for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Let's let's just stop and pray today that God will focus us and center us around His glory and that by the power of His Word and that by His Holy Spirit who dwells in us and sheds His love abroad in our hearts, that He'll make us that kind of people. Who can, who can respond to weakness and affliction and pain that kind of way and give God glory and give God thanks and magnify God. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we love You so much. And Your Word is a double-edged sword that penetrates and pierces and shows us not only the ingratitude that lingers in our hearts and lives, but the root of it. And that's painful, God, but you're such a merciful surgeon to excise that stuff from us, that selfish, prideful, me-centered root of ingratitude and bitterness in our hearts. Would you cut it out of us? Would you teach us to mortify it daily? Would you give us, Father, as you already have, the strength and the ability to stand in this place where God's glory, your glory is the most important central thing in our lives so that whatever we're going through, we can see your purposes at work and we can understand that you're using all of these things for our good to teach us, to train us, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness and to trust you and to magnify you. And God, especially help us to see all the good. Help us to see the sun shining out there. 
Help us to smell the fresh air. Help us to see the roofs over our heads, Father, and the food on our plates, and the family members that love us and that we love. And Father, help us in all of these things, the thorns in our flesh, the painful circumstances, and the beautiful blessings to have thankful hearts that we might magnify you with thanksgiving. Our God, we love you, and we give you praise, and we give you thanks. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Page 12. For the beauty of the earth. Look at this hymn. And we've got six verses of it here. Some of which weren't in the hymnal. And so we just wrote the words out. And I hope the tune is familiar to you. You'll, you'll figure it out fast if, if it's not. But this hymn and all these verses just unfolds all of the manifold ways that God is so good to us. So that we can focus on all of them and say, Lord of all, to Thee we raise. This our hymn of grateful praise. So let's stand up together and let's give God thanks and praise and magnify Him with these sacrifices of thanksgiving this morning for the beauty of the earth.